Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life examples of successful talent projects. Talent Management Truths is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I discuss actual successes and lessons learned from their experience in our field from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. Welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today my guest is Susan Salamone. Have you ever rebranded your department to signal a key change in strategy or been curious about the story behind someone's title? If so, you'll find this episode worth tuning into. Susan Salamone is Vice President for Talent Stewardship at Ameticis, a large healthcare organization. She is a passionate visionary leader who is very focused on how she and her teams can deliver their programs in a way that best suits the needs of the people they support. In this episode, Susan shares, among other things, about what talent stewardship looks and feels like in her organization. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the Talent Management Truths podcast with your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm joined today by Susan Salamone, who is the VP of Talent Stewardship in a large healthcare organization in Nashville. I'm delighted to have Susan with us here today. Susan has been in our field of talent management for over 20 years. She started her career in benefits and eventually became an education services specialist, I think was the term, and discovered her passion for developing people. Overall, Susan believes that there's a place for learning to be embedded in daily life. And that's what she is seeking to do with her team in her role. So with that, I give you Susan Salomon. Welcome, Susan. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Great to see you. So as we know, I'm I'm podcasting from my best friend's office here. She kindly let me come. So I've got a bit of a different background from usual because there's guys doing some hardwood flooring installation at my house and it's pretty, pretty dreadful noise guys. So it's been an interesting morning. We've been chatting in the green room about the setup and the tech issues, but I think we're good to go. Yeah. So tell me and our listeners a little bit about your your path to where you are now as VP of Talent Stewardship. Yeah, it's been an interesting path, I'll say that. So you had mentioned that I started as an educational services specialist. I was working for a state agency in Texas and had actually recently gotten passed over for a supervisor position. I was just so frustrated about not getting that opportunity because I thought, you know, that was the next step in my career. That's where I needed to move. Then the, the agency had this education services specialist, again, terrible title, come open and I applied for it, interviewed for it. And honestly, if you can believe it, I really enjoyed preparing for the interview because one of the things they wanted me to do was, you know, to give a little bit of a class and facilitate interactions between a panel. And it ended up being a blast putting the training together and then actually doing the interview, which interviews are never fun. So I got into that role and just fell in love. I loved being in the classroom. I loved 
seeing the light bulbs turn on for people. I, and I love the research part of it too, because I was having to design courses as well. So I'd have to go, well, I didn't have to, I'd get to go read about subjects and pull them together in a way that made sense and just fell in love with training from that point on and really stayed in that space most of my career. My husband was in the military. And so we had the opportunity to move not just around the United States, but around the world, which was such a wonderful experience. We're very, very lucky. So spent about 20 years, you know, doing that. And then I took a role, we moved to New Orleans, which we love New Orleans, a fantastic city. And I took a role with a large healthcare system there. And shortly after I arrived, I had the opportunity to apply for different roles in human resources because they were restructuring. You know, I sat back and looked and I said, I've spent a lot of my time in human resources in the organizational development space, leadership development, training. And I really felt like it was time to do something different. We had a great vice president who was really interested in bringing organizational development skills into the human resource business partner role. And so I had the opportunity to move into that HR business partner position, stayed in that for several years. And actually, when I came to the company that I'm with in Nashville, that's what brought me here was a human resources business partner role. But my role has morphed over time since I arrived you know, first I became the senior director for our organizational development team. Then I, you know, had business partner, employee relations and organizational development reporting to me. And just recently we restructured my team to focus really tightly on learning and development. And so that's really what my, you know, what my role is now is that VP of talent stewardship. Interestingly, I have also have the employee relations team reporting to me. And initially you might think that's doesn't make any sense. Why would you have employee relations in your learning space? We've really started to create a culture within our employee relations team, being coaches to our leaders. So when a leader reaches out to them about a performance issue, they're not just coaching them through the performance improvement process. They're really talking to them about how can you better work with this person? Are you getting the most out of them? And so they're, they're really helping us advance on an individual level, that leadership development. So we're really excited to have them as our partners in that. Yeah, that's really a progressive model. And I, I, it's interesting because I, I relate to the whole HR business partnering. I did that role myself. And previous to that, though, I was the learning and development business partner because we had sort of a more straight up split between that role. And we partnered with the HR business partner. So they, you know, handled everything that was kind of on the employee relations side. And we overlapped on certain things. And then as a management team, we decided, OK, when we evolved to the next stage, we're going to have super HRBPs that had that OD kind of experience and sensibility built in. So it sounds like you're continuing with that trend even yes. now with having employee yeah. relations really trying to bring that human side of business into the logistical stuff that they often are seen as taking care of. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Excellent. So another thing I'd love to, to hear a little more about is your fascinating title, VP of talent stewardship. Tell us a little around how you landed on that. Well, my team and I, when I originally got, my team came together, several teams came together at one point. And when we all came together, that was one of the things we did. We had a, an offsite meeting where we were really thinking about what, what's the purpose of our team? We're, we're a team. We're going to have a shared purpose. We, we wanted to really be able to articulate that to other parts of the organization. So we spent a lot of time wrestling with what our purpose was, what we were bringing to the business, what our goals were going to be for the next year or so. And then the last piece was really, so what 
what should we call ourselves? And we, you know, we talked about talent management. We talked about just a variety of different roles. But what I kept coming back to, what we kept coming back to is it's our job to make sure our people can do what they're here to do. They can fulfill their purpose and we make it as easy for them to do it as possible. And so it's, you know, it's not just about us providing them the right learning at the right time, but we also make sure, want to make sure that we're making the best use of their time because as a healthcare organization, our nurses, our therapists, that we have chaplains that work with us, social workers, they really don't want to spend their time in training. As much as we love training, that's not what they that's not what they're here to do. They're really here yes. to take care of our patients. So, you know, keeping that in mind and, and the word stewardship kept coming up. What we have to be great stewards of our people's time because their time is precious. And the time that they do have, the majority of it should be out taking care of our patients, not sitting in front of a computer or in a classroom learning. So that's where we came to that title. Yeah. So it's very compelling the way you describe it, right? It makes so much, so much good sense. So when you went out to the organization to say, here I am, but here's my team, we are talent stewardship. How much of that context, that backdrop for how you got there, did you share? I did share it specifically around the way our, the way we came to the name of the organization or of our group. But what we did share was we were building a learning strategy and how did we want to move from where we were as an organization to being a learning organization. And that was late, late 2020 when we presented the strategy. And so a large part of that strategy is giving people the right training at the right time in the right way and making sure that we're making the best possible use of their time that we can. We were talking about it a little earlier that, you know, training learning isn't an event. When you're a learning organization, learning isn't an event. It's what you do all the time. And so that's where we're really moving towards this model where it's not just about people sitting down and doing a class, you know, online or doing a class in a classroom. It's how do we embed that learning and opportunities for learning in their everyday work, you know, the things, conversations they're having with their leaders. Our clinicians, again, drive because we provide care in people's homes. So our clinicians are on the road a lot. So how do they take five minutes while they're in the car from patient one to patient two and reflect on how that patient encounter went? What did I do well? What could I do better? And then what am I going to do differently next time? So how do we start to embed that learning everywhere? Yeah. And reflective learning really is the way forward in terms of Mm -hmm. practice and continual progress, isn't it? It's reflective learning, not just, oh, took the course, you know, going to throw the binder on the shelf and it gets Mm -hmm. dusty and you're never, Mm -hmm. you're never done. So I really appreciate how you're bringing that to the organization and helping your team kind of get behind that too. And I would think too that I'm, I'm making an assumption, so you tell me if I'm wrong, that, that it, was, it was quite well accepted, I would think, by the field because, you know, you're saying to them, we value your time so much so that we see ourselves as stewards of it and want to make sure it's used well. And I definitely think there's more marketing to do on that front. So, you know, marketing internally, of course, but one of the things that we have done is take a really hard look at the orientation and the content that we were delivering to people. When I first took the team over, when you are a new person here, oh my goodness, the first time you opened the learning management system, it was daunting. You would have a long list of classes that you needed to work your way through. The mandatories? I, I used to be in healthcare Mandatory. too. It was like, 
Mm-hmm. Compliance, the hand right. washing, compliance stuff. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm like, PPE. I could teach the hand washing class now, and I'm <laughs> I'm not a clinician, but I'm pretty sure I could teach the hand washing class without you know without any help. I've had to watch it so many times, but yeah. So there's those mandatory ones, but then there's also things about how we deliver care to our patients, our model, our values. All of that is also there, and. We recently got a new learning management system, and one of the benefits of the new system was it allowed us to deliver training over time. Instead of everything having to be assigned to a person on day one, we could drop it in increments over the course of the person's first you know, 90 days. And we also built in different activities, right? So you would take a course, but then you were supposed to speak with your peer mentor and your leader was supposed to have a conversation with you each a week to say like, what have you been learning? This is what you've been talking about. You know, let's talk about what you've learned. So, and that that process had been built and was in place. The issue was our technology didn't really support it because everything just got assigned on day one. So with the new learning management system, we were able to drip it. Like you were saying, we were able to drip it over time. And my team has also really taken a, a microscope to all of the content that we were assigning people to say, what do people absolutely have to have in order to be successful so that they're competent and confident to do their jobs? And then what content is is nice for them to know, but isn't necessary for them to know? And so my team has done a fantastic job of really parsing out the necessary and the nice. And now we assign the necessary and the nice is there if they want it, but not mandatory, not something they have to take as part of their orientation. And we've made a significant cut. I want to say the numbers were one of the roles, because it depends on what role you were coming in. One role, I think, had 72 hours of training when they would first start. Yeah, two weeks worth of training, all on day one. And, And again, it was all there. So they could sit down for literally two weeks straight and just plow through a bunch of online courses. And we've now broken that down to, I think they've got about 40 hours now. And again, it's dripped over the course of several weeks instead of all on day one. What a much better experience for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the our new people who are having that experience don't know that it's different from what we used to do. So that's when I say we need to market a little bit. I think we need to go on a bit of a roadshow to say, you know, here's what we've been doing. We still have a lot of work to do to continue improving the learning experience. We've done a lot. I agree. I think that would allow you, you know, because people need to, it's one thing to say you have a strategy, but for people to understand what's the strategy in action, right? The whys, the impacts. So it's interesting because it sounds like with this whole review of that content, that heavy stuff, right? That was all there, 72 hours. It's been very thoughtfully sequenced and then prioritized and sequenced. Yes. So it's interesting. I love the drip method. I use Kajabi for, for my website and my CRM, but also for my online classroom. So I'm doing a, an online group coaching program that's, that's actually starting next week. So the classroom is set up so the, you know, the module pre-work and so on goes into week one and then the video for the class goes up and then there's nothing else until the pre-work for week two, because I've learned too much too soon. It decreases focus and motivation, I would say. Do you, what do you think of that? Yeah. I I mean, we would hear so many stories about people sitting down and logging into the learning management system for the first time and just being overwhelmed. And even, you know, someone was telling me the story of a leader. She was new and she was leading one of our agencies. We call them care centers. She was leading one of our care centers and 
she was in tears because she was looking at the list of courses that she had to do. She wanted to take great care of the new team that she was going to be leading, and she just didn't know how she was going to get all those classes done, have a personal life, and take great care of her team at the same time. And so to know that we've we've changed that model and now it's a much more it's just much more digestible, right? You could take it in and it's not that overwhelmed feeling when they first look at the list. So we're, yeah. we're very proud of the work that the team has done. Yeah, it's, it sounds tremendous. I would be proud if I were you too. You know, what also is, is interesting, what's coming up for me is my 15-year-old son in grade 10 went back to school yesterday. It's really weird the way they're doing the semesters and everything now because of COVID. So he was assigned 76 math problems on day one due by Thursday. Oh my goodness. And so he was, you know, ever since he was a little boy, we were worked on chunking stuff out from big, scary to small, manageable, right? So you can just stay present one thing at a time. So funny how you see your work get mirrored in your personal life. So yeah. last night, the conversation was around, how can we chunk it out over three days? That's really how many per day? You know, 25 in a bit. And then it was like, once he kind of wrapped his head around it, it felt much better. So as far as the teacher, I think the teacher probably could have dripped that as well, but that's not done so much in school. I think he, yes. this teacher is known for, I'm going to deliver a message that this is going to be a lot of work. And yet we know, I, I think in a lot of ways, often adult learning is ahead of pedagogy. It's not always, but I was a teacher way back in the day. But with adult education, I think we are more cognizant of how reflective learning and drip method is, is needed over time because we're trying to work around people's jobs okay. versus it being all education all the time. So, yeah. so I mean, I, I'm not trying to get into a philosophical argument with anybody listening about the differences, but it, but it is interesting. I've often noticed that there is a bit of a difference. Yeah. And adults are so practical too, right? Yeah. They, they need to work it in around the rest of their lives. And they also want it to be applicable. They learn because they need to learn. Usually you have those people who are just voracious learners their whole lives, but typical adults, I think, learn because they need it. Whereas, you know, children are learning because we say, well, you need to know how to do this kind of math when you become an adult, whether you ever use it again. Yeah. I always say to, to Patrick, you know, it's, it's, you're in school to learn how to learn. So there's the discipline, the practice of it. I do think though, there's a lot of key techniques, like kids, adults need to know why they're being put in a class or told to do something, they need mm -hmm. to know the why, right? Mm -hmm. That buy-in piece is so key. I think it's equally key for our kids. That's another yeah. day, another, another story, I'm sure. So, all right. So, so talent stewardship is, is well underway in your organization and you've been working with your team. It sounds like it's relatively new. You're about nine, eight months into seeing this come to to life your vision mm -hmm. and so on and there's some internal marketing you still want to do tell me a little bit about the strategy because i know you have a lot going on at all times so in terms of you move from strategy to what you implement first where did you start like apart from the onboarding piece you described yeah well there's there's multiple streams so you know when i think about it there's the big part of it is the leadership development piece because we're creating a small part of people's opportunity to learn. You know, if, if learning is not an event, it's what happens every day. Well, we're usually not around our people every day. They're not interacting with the talent stewardship team on a daily basis. They're interacting with their leaders. And so a large part of our work and, and that's really underway and, and has been getting underway, we again have a lot more to do is, is how do we help our leaders become 
developers of people, coaches for their people, so that they can have those conversations. When something goes terribly wrong, how do you stop and say, let's talk about this? You know, what really happened? What are you taking away from it? What can we, you know, what can you learn from this? What can you share with your colleagues about what you've learned so that people see even those failures when they do happen, people are seeing those as learning opportunities and not as things that need to go wrong. And part of the benefit of having the employee relations team underneath talent stewardship is they're very much promoting that attitude. When an employee does something wrong, instead of it just being automatically, well, that was a policy violation, you know, we've got to deal with that. There's a conversation around what, how did we get here where the person violated a policy Were they aware of the policy? Did they know how to do what we were asking them to do? Did they have the right support? And so really looking at that as an opportunity to assess the person's intent, really, and then make a determination about, you know, what was the right consequence for that. We've been looking at a model that's used, started, I think, in aviation, actually, but, you know, it's used in hospitals a lot. It's called just culture. And that's really what the just culture concept is about is how do you look at, you know, these mistakes people make and determine, was it just human error, right? Was it something the person did deliberately to bypass a safeguard or to do something? Or were they knowingly or intentionally doing something wrong? And I'd venture to say 90% of people it's human error, right? They're not, there's not a lot of people out there. Oh, I think it's even higher. Yeah. Deliberately, you know, trying to do things wrong. Do people take shortcuts and bypass things? Yes. I think we also have to look at ourselves and say, well, did we give them an incentive to bypass? Well, like, did we set them up to do things right? Yeah. Do we unintentionally reward them for that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So we've been using that model as not formally, but the whole employer relations team understands that model. And those are the conversations they're having with leaders as things come up with employees. So what kind of impact or feedback are you getting as a result of this shift? It's interesting. We have a we do a pulse survey once a quarter on, you know, how our employees are feeling and we were going to ask questions around just culture, not specifically calling it just culture, but asking questions around, you know, how people feel if, if something goes wrong, is that used as a learning opportunity? We had some other questions that we wanted to ask. So we're holding on the just culture, but I do think we're going to have a conversation with some of our leaders. We've also implemented a concept called solution sessions. It, it'll be a topic that we want to discuss with a a group of people, we put the word out and say, if you're passionate about this topic, for example, I have one on recognition later this morning. If you're passionate about recognition and you'd like to contribute and advise the emeticist leadership on how we should do this better, throw your hat in the ring and the first 50 people can come to this solution session. So I have one later this morning on recognition and we're going to do the same thing on just culture with our leaders to start with to say, you know, are you seeing a difference in how the employee relations team's interacting with you? How is that impacting your team when we're having different conversations? So we'll learn that. I just don't have it yet. Yeah, no, and that's fair because it's still it's still new, right? It's still early days. So I am fascinated with this concept of solution sessions. So this is bringing business leaders in? Is it for leaders mainly or? Employees. Employees. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how, what's the structure of that? How do you facilitate those? 
it's we usually have five or six questions because there's a lot of conversation. So you don't have a lot of time for a lot of questions. Right. And it's, you know, it's probably what most people would call a focus group. I think we started with the idea of an employee advisory board. And then the conversation was, well, there's going to be topics that those people aren't passionate about, right? The dress code policy. Yeah. I'm sure there are people who are passionate about the dress code policy, but not many. And so the solution session was an alternative to having a standing group of employees who were to, whose purpose was to advise us. And it was really to tap into people who were passionate about topics as they arose. So that's how we've been using it. We've done at least one a month for the last four or five months or so. And they, we, again, we get great participation in them. And they always come up with great ideas that we can implement right away that make a difference. So they see the impact. Yeah, they see that their their contribution is is making a difference. That's huge, right? Again, so I, I'm feeling a common theme when I work with talent management leaders is like a challenge that we often have is building buy-in, right? Both with the employee base, employees and leaders that we serve, and then the leadership teams that often hold the purse strings and, you know, want us to do massive transformations with very little time and resources, right? It's just, it's just the, the nature of the game, not a complaint, just acknowledging it for what it is. So I'm hearing very clearly that you are a leader focused and, and really smart about building buy-in with the people that you serve through the stewardship piece, right? We're stewards of your time. We get, you're super busy. We're trying to make manageable and useful and helpful. And then I'm hearing it also in what you just described, right? In terms of engaging them in these solution sessions. Would you be able to speak a little bit around how do you build buy-in going up? So, because we've been talking about down and kind of sideways. What about up? Yes. Data, <laughs> you know. Data. <laughs> yes. So, we, we're very lucky here to have a great team that really understands how to gather and analyze data and use it to tell a story. So I would say that's probably not a strength of mine, but I've got great colleagues who are, are really good at that and have are, are really helpful in, in shaping the stories when we're trying to influence up. And it is a balance of stories and also anecdotes, being able to share quotes from people. So just recently, we had launched a leadership development program and I had data that showed what the employee satisfaction was for this particular group of leaders, you know, what it used to be. And now that we've launched this new program, you know, how it's shifted very positively. We had turnover numbers. We even had metrics like how their budgets were doing, you know, how they were doing financially with their budgets and the impact of having much more hands-on, very personalized learning experiences. So I had that data and then I also had a slide with different quotes on it from the people who are participating in the program and people who were mentors to new leaders. Several said, I wish we would have had a program like this when I started because they're seeing how much, how structured that new orientation is and how much we're su providing support for a new leader to make sure they really have every chance of being successful before they graduate from the program. It's a balance, I think. Congratulations on on that, right? You know, to get that kind of acknowledgement really says a lot. You know, people see the value in it. Oh, I wish I had it for myself. So if you were to give sort of over 20 years experience, your top three tips for building buy-in, like say you're going to go and propose something to the senior management team and there's there's some money involved, there's time, there's resources needed beyond your own team, right? What are the top three things you would advise somebody you were mentoring? that they need to take into account? 
That's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is really understand what matters to the people you're trying to influence. So if it's a business metric of some sort, if it's turnover, if it's employee satisfaction, you need to know the metrics that matter to the people you're working to influence. And then you need to be able to put the data together that shows you expect to be able to influence that number in the right direction. That's not always easy. And one of the things we often do here is pilots. So we have an idea, we think it's going to work. We don't always go whole hog and right off the bat start, you know, with 100% of the team. We'll often start with a pilot and then see how the pilot works, work out kinks, because there's always going to be kinks, right? absolutely. You get a chance to work out the kinks and then you have that pilot population where you can look and see what results did we get. And then that is very helpful. So I would say don't undersell, right? Like if you think it's going to work and you want to go whole hog and you think that's the right thing to do, by all means, sell it, go for that, right? Say, this is what we need to do and put your confidence behind it. Just conviction and say, this is what we need to do. But if it is something where you feel like I'd like to see this in action before we go for the whole, go for the gusto as it were, then (laughs) figure out how to build a pilot that's going to let you demonstrate that it is going to have a positive impact. And then those are, pilots are much easier to get buy-in for. Yeah. Cause it, cause it's, it's really, it's like agile development, right? It's about let's, let's, what we're, what we're looking for is to try something on for size, get input, right? Make it even better. Are you, willing to give your support for that. And then we'll circle back with the results. And then we're going to say, here's what we're going to adjust as we move forward, hopefully with your approval. Yeah. We've tried things that haven't worked and we've been very public about that. As you know, to me, it's part of being a learning organization. We were, we were having some orientation and we were for a large group of clinicians and we wanted to provide a kind of a concierge service. And so it was a hands-on, you know, they were, they were touching base with the new hires on a frequency. They had specific questions they were asking, checking in to make sure that technology was working. And we did it for a few months and then we stopped and we assessed and we said it didn't really make that much of a difference. Yeah. So we ended up saying that didn't work. And we we shared that with our team and our whole HR team because it was something that we had said, we're going to try and do this to see if it'll help. It didn't work. So we said, you know what? Let's show that we have we failed at something, but we're using it as an opportunity to learn. Okay. I just want to re- rewind that. So we failed at something, but we're going to use it as an opportunity to learn. Because, you know, that's something that I walk around saying. But I would say fully believe it. You know, there is no failure. There's only learning. Now, hard to say in healthcare, particularly it's fraught with life and death stuff, right? So, so the repercussions of, of a mistake can be huge. At the same time, most mistakes are not like life and death. And I think we tend to give them more weight than they deserve. It's around how do you prevent the majority of them in the first place? And how do you help people get up once they've fallen. You know what I mean? It's sort of like what you're what you're you've been doing through your employee relations team, right? Like this is not about it's how do we have the difficult, sometimes tough conversation around performance while preserving the relationship. Because if you destroy motivation, they're not gonna want to change the behavior anyways. You, you know what I mean? So it, yep. it it's a fine line. Yeah. Such a fascinating thing. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about What's the biggest lesson that you've learned personally during your years in our field? Mm. And it doesn't, I'm not saying, what's your biggest failure and how did you learn from that? Yes, <laughs> it's no. not a spinoff, the last no, question necessarily. I want to tell people that one. No. <laughs> <laughs> I want to share that one. I don't know. Boy, that's a great question, Lisa. Biggest lesson over 20 
plus years in this field. I think it goes back to what I was talking about. Always keep the learner at the center of what you do. If you're focused on getting the learner what they need, when they need it, in a way that they can consume it, then I think you're going to be successful. Mm. That's powerful because in a lot of cases that there's this thing called band-aid training, right? Like an abdication of leadership, you know, that I hear about from my clients and I've been in that situation myself, right? It's like you fix them, you train them. There's, I remember years ago being told this entire team of supervisors has no sense of urgency. And anyways, in the end, it was how, because they weren't responding to a particular email request that would come out weekly for, for data. Because when we looked into it, the leader's language was, if you have any feedback, please let me know by when, by Friday at four, if. So all of these crazy, busy supervisors just went, hey, it's I don't optional. I don't have any, right? But anyways, but, it, but it's interesting because I think in that case, the solution was, let's, let's think about what does the learner need? They need clarity of language and clarity around what the expectation is. So that led us to really doing a workshop with the leaders, right? Yes. And yes. then taking it out to the to the the rest of the team to say, here's here's what we're going to adjust on our end. So it's really, really powerful. So I appreciate, you know, that learner, like we say learner-centric often in the in the talent management world. And yet what does it really mean? So let's start with what they need. It's not about throw something at the wall. We're doing a three-day conference. We need a, a one-hour keynote that costs 10 grand, but what's the actual impact? Like that's that's not actually learner-centric. It could be provide a moment of inspiration for 10% in the room. They, they, everybody might enjoy it 100%. Only 10% are actually going to sort of pull the thread a little bit on what they heard. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm throwing out percentages. I don't know, but I, but I think it would probably be fairly low. Yes. Well, and it's funny that you say that because my team has heard me say many times, if you're familiar with human performance technology, it's this concept of there's a lot of things that influence performance. It's not just does the person know how to do it? It's have we incented them, right? Have we incented them the right way? Are we being clear with what we expect? If we're not getting what we expect, have we given them feedback to let them know we're not getting what we expect? And all those things influence performance. So there's multiple things that influence whether someone's performing or not. And my team has heard me say a billion times, Because Gary Rumler, who was kind of a thought leader in that area of human performance technology, I think he's the person who said, if I put a gun to their head and they can do it, it's not a training issue. Yes. I know it's shocking when you say that. But the bottom line is, if you really put someone to the test and say, you have to do this now, you have to perform this, and they can do it, they don't need training. Something else is getting in the way of them performing. Yeah, there's a willingness issue or motivation of some sort. Yeah. Or we've not set them up right, right? The system doesn't work the right way for them to be able to do it correctly. So again, I know it's shocking to say that, but my team knows that, again, stewards, it's our job to defend people's time. And if we think that the training is going to be a waste of people's time because they already know how to do it, then it's our job to defend and say, like you did with your with your client, we need to dig deeper and understand because they know how to do this and they're not. So let's figure out why they're not and then put a solution in based on that. Yeah. So excellent. So we've covered a lot of ground, including the big buy-in question, right? Which yes. is which is so huge when we're caught in the middle as talent management folks tend to be, right? You're in the middle of the people you serve, the people you answer to, right? And it's sometimes a little little tough being there. It sounds like you're managing and navigating beautifully. Just to end off our conversation, one last question for you. If you think back 
the very beginning of your career, when you're starting out after school, what's one piece of advice you would give young Susan? I would say take chances. One of the great opportunities of my life has come because I mentioned, you know, my husband was in the military and we had the opportunity to live so many places. And it forced me in a way, I was just talking to a colleague about this this morning, it forced me to change jobs relatively frequently because we were moving from place to place. And I'll date myself, but it was before remote working really was a thing or an option because there wasn't an internet back then. Well, I think it was, there was an internet back then, but not and many it was people. a baby. It was yes, a baby. it was baby internet. And so I, I really had to start over a lot. So I'd work someplace for two or three years, build up and learn that role. And then because we were moving, I'd have the opportunity to live in a new place, look for a new job, work in a new industry. That was sort of forced upon me. But in retrospect, I think it's probably the best thing that happened to me career-wise because it gave me such a broad exposure to different industries, different cultures, different countries, and that it really, I think it, it's been probably the most important part of my career overall. Yeah, you were kind of pushed into that courageous mode, right? Courage over, over comfort as Brene would say. And that's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been delightful just to catch up with you earlier and to have this conversation. I know our audience will really appreciate the, the nuggets of wisdom. Thank you, Susan. Yeah. No, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Oh, and each month, I'll select one lucky reviewer to receive their free personal True Tilt profile. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth. <laughs>